hand of the Lord was with him. The child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day he appeared publicly to Israel. Here ends our reading. Well, here we are on the fourth Sunday of Advent. We are literally on the cusp of Christmas. You can feel it in the air. The great celebration is almost upon us. And still, think of all the things you have left to do. (laughs) Before we get there, we do have one final passage to examine here in church. I take from my text this morning the 66th verse of the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke. All who heard them pondered all who heard them pondered them and said what then will this child become for indeed the hand of the lord was with him please pray with me lord in heaven inspire us open our eyes let us see the world as you do and let your word mold our lives amen This Advent, we have been on a fun journey, a journey through the text of the Christmas story. Normally, this time of year, we would be looking at the classic Advent passages. You know, the stuff you find in the prophet Isaiah. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, these passages in Isaiah and other places are great, for sure. But instead, I have decided to take apart and unwrap the Christmas stories themselves. I want you to see the real Christmas. I want you to appreciate the nuances and differences between the various accounts and how they fit into the larger narrative of each evangelist, because that's where we might find a fresh message for ourselves this season. The real Christmas story begins with a list of names. It's the genealogy of Jesus that opens the New Testament. Matthew, the evangelist, is deeply concerned with showing how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Hebrew Bible. Jesus is the new King David, the new Moses, and someone who welcomes all, not just Jews, in line with the promises that God made to Abraham. Matthew carries on the same theme in his telling of Jesus' birth. The account is full of references to the Hebrew Bible, something that you miss when you hear the standard melded account that you get in our popular Christmases. Another key theme of Matthew's whole gospel is that Jesus fulfills and reinterprets the law. Matthew was writing for a community that likely had lots of contact with local Jews. Matthew argues that Jesus was a good Jew and one who saw the law for what it was intended to be, not a rule book, but something that points to how we should treat others. Fundamentally, it's about people and the kingdom of God. The law is not an, is not an end in and of itself, but a guide. Joseph exemplifies this in the way that he treats Mary in the birth narrative. Last week, we turned our attention to the Gospel of Luke. Luke's account is all about Mary. Sure, like Matthew, Luke mentions the Davidic descent of Jesus, but is less concerned with it than Matthew is. In Luke's Gospel, Mary becomes a star actor in the Christmas story. For a patriarchal culture, like the one Luke inhabited, this is remarkable. God favors Mary and all the Marys of the world. God favors the powerless over the powerful. This message becomes the basis for Mary's famous song, the Magnificat. Concern for the powerless has a particular emphasis throughout the rest of Luke's gospel. How was that for a little recap? Now today, we turn our attention to another intriguing aspect of Luke's birth narrative, 
the role of Zechariah and Elizabeth, the parents of John the Baptist. Nowhere else in the New Testament do we see a reference to the parents of John the Baptist. Luke is the only writer to include their story. Part of their inclusion is no doubt to enhance Luke's overall narrative. By weaving the story of John the Baptist's birth with that of Jesus's, Luke creates an artful transition from the account of Jesus' birth to the call of John the Baptist in the wilderness that opens chapter 3. Luke's inclusion of John's birth takes care of another issue. John the Baptist was a well-known religious figure of his day. It was also widely acknowledged that John baptized Jesus, as he did many others. This led many to assume that Jesus was a disciple of John the Baptist. The parallel birth narratives in Luke demonstrate that, while John is a messenger of God, Jesus is still above him in both divine and human eyes. Jesus has the more more miraculous birth of the two. And when Elizabeth meets Mary while pregnant, the little fetus John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb to indicate his acknowledgement of Jesus' identity as the Christ. But the story of Zechariah and Elizabeth does more than show the link between Jesus and John the Baptist. It does more than artfully weave the stories together. It also includes a message for you. We first run into Zechariah and Elizabeth in the very first verses of the Gospel of Luke. Zechariah was a priest who served God in the temple. One day, while he was doing his rotation in the Holy of Holies, the innermost sanctum of the temple, the angel of the Lord, Gabriel, appears to Zechariah. Gabriel promises Zechariah that his wife Elizabeth, uh, that his wife Elizabeth, though old and thought to be barren, will bear a child. The child shall be named John and will be a great prophet in the mold of the legendary Elijah. As Zechariah is amazed at what Gabriel was saying to him, so amazed, in fact, that he questions whether it could happen. In response to Zechariah's disbelief, Gabriel strikes Zechariah dumb. He can no longer hear or speak. When Zechariah leaves the temple, everyone can see that something profound had happened inside. Zechariah had a vision, but because he was struck dumb, he could tell no one about what he saw or heard. The great predicted event of John the Baptist's birth finally occurs in our reading that we have for this morning. The birth itself is covered rather quickly in one declarative sentence. Just as much emphasis is placed on the reaction to the incredible birth. Elizabeth and Zechariah's friends and neighbors celebrate this great sign of God's favor. Then Elizabeth and Zechariah take their newborn infant to be circumcised according to the Jewish customs of the day. It was at a circumcising that the infant would be named. The people at the circumcision assumed that the infant would be named for their father. But Elizabeth speaks up and says that the name will be John. This surprises the people around her. John? Why John? No one in the family was named John. Surely Elizabeth must be mistaken. The people turned to Zechariah. As the father, he would have the final say. Because he was still deaf and dumb, Zechariah had no idea what had been said between Elizabeth and the people. The people hand Zechariah a writing tablet so he can communicate his wishes. To everyone's astonishment, Zechariah writes the name John on the tablet. How could he have come up with the same name? What was going on? Then Zechariah miraculously regains his power of speech. He begins to praise God. He tells the people of his visitation by the angel Gabriel. The people are shocked and afraid. God has truly been there with them. God was to be with this little infant. Something special was happening. God had shown them a sign, a sign of what was to come, a sign for their lives. If there's one trend that defines our time now, it is big data. 
Big data refers to the massive amounts of information that now gets routinely collected about ourselves. Facebook makes its money off mining endless data about you, and you freely give it to them. Just this week, we found out that Facebook even shares our personal messages with companies and who then try and analyze them to make money. That's right, Facebook is a business, it turns out, and they don't really care that much about your privacy. Every online search, every purchase, Google Maps tracks your location and your favorite places. If you have Google Assistant or Amazon Echo or any equivalent device that responds to your voice commands, that device is constantly listening to you and gathering data. The amount of data available about you will get even, get even a bigger boost as more and more people voluntarily give their DNA to Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and other services. Once they have your DNA, there's no telling what further information they will gather. For years, all this information was not all that useful. You might have endless data points on an individual, but those data points are not much use unless you can do something with them. Well, today we have supercomputers and algorithms that can analyze all that data in a myriad of ways. It always freaks me out when Facebook shows me an ad for something I was thinking about buying before I even bought it. That's big data for you. During the 2016 presidential election, Cambridge Analytica used Facebook data to target voters more effectively. They knew just what type of message would turn you to a different candidate. The company, then the campaigns could hammer away at that message until you unconsciously began to agree with them. Big data is here. Unfortunately, we don't have a, don't have a supercomputer that helps us sort through all the data points that we encounter in our lives. Every day we have countless interactions. Endless data from the world around us. When we meet someone new, for instance, we take in their clothes, their facial expressions, their voice, and other sounds, their smells. Our brains are pretty good at sorting through all this data, but our brains are highly selective and make snap judgments. Whereas a supercomputer can look at the data and analyze all of it and see various hidden trends and interests, our brains rely on our past experiences to filter data quickly. Our brains are highly biased in a way that supercomputers are not. Our brains have to be that way so as not to be overwhelmed and to make sense of the world. We do our best to sort out our lives, but oftentimes we're left confused and unsure what to do. You know what I mean? There might be some lingering doubts about your job. You like certain parts of it. Other parts, not so much. You've been in it for a while. At the same time, there's this lingering sense of dissatisfaction. Something is not quite right. What are you to do? How to make sense of, go of what's going on? The same thing can happen in your personal life. What do, you do about your, what do you do about a relationship with a friend or a relative? What about a significant other? At what point do you make a change? What's the next step and why? All around us, we keep getting more and more data. We have plenty to go off of to make a decision, but sometimes it's not that easy. What we really need is a sign. Something that can tell us what to do, where to go, how to react. Thankfully, there are those times where the signs in our life are obvious. My call to the ministry was one of those signs for me. It was November 2003. I had recently left my job as an investment banker in Boston. I actually enjoyed that job. The hours were brutal, but I liked the work. The issue was that I was not all that motivated to make a ton of money, and that was the whole point of being an investment banker. <laughs> It takes over your whole life. In exchange, you earn a huge paycheck. I wanted something that was more meaningful. 
So I found myself on Vancouver Island, British Columbia. One of my friends from college had circulated my resume to his former high school, and they had flown me there for an interview. I liked the school, and I loved teaching. I was seriously considering the position if they offered it to me. Then, as I was getting ready to go into rowing practice, I had this sudden epiphany. It was the closest I have come in my life to God actually speaking to me. The message was crystal clear. Go to divinity school and become a minister. No joke. That's what happened. It was such a profound and unexpected experience that I turned down the job that they actually did offer me to work at that school, and I began researching divinity schools as soon as I got back to Boston. At the time, I knew nothing about divinity schools. The rest, as they say, is history. Now, that was an obvious sign, a true personal epiphany. Have you ever had moments in your life where a clear sign emerged? Perhaps it was a sign that you should marry your spouse. Maybe it was a clear sign that you needed a new job. Or it might have been the time when you decided to get sober, that one unmistakable sign that didn't allow you to dodge the truth any longer. Those obvious signs can be life-changing. Sadly, they don't happen all that often. Other signs are obvious only in hindsight. When I had my call to the ministry, I was not intending to go to divinity school. It wasn't even on my radar screen. And yet, when I look back at my life, I can see there were plenty of signs that had pointed in that direction. Of all my siblings, I was the one most interested in church. In high school, I was the one who who would encourage my father to attend church with me. Not many middle schoolers read the Bible on their own because they're interested in what God might have to say, but I did. I had profound faith experiences in my teens. When I was in college, I continued to attend church and sought to learn more about God. Religion was the first major I declared before I switched to history. When I taught at Eden College in England after graduating Harvard, I was one of only five faculty members out of 180 who would attend chapel service every day. My interest in religion was so obvious that the head of the religion department at Eden asked me to teach a class of eighth graders when a a spot became open midway through the year. And yet for all that, I never thought to go to divinity school. I had missed all the small signs, or ignored them. In hindsight, it seems obvious, but at the time, I wasn't able to see it. How about you? When did the signs seem so obvious in hindsight, but somehow you missed them before? Again, our brains, our human brains, don't interpret events in a vacuum. We rely on our past experiences, the narratives that we create for ourselves. How often have you seen someone else Ignore one sign after another. This family member or friend doesn't somehow see it. The signs are clear to you. You know this person. But that person has something else in his head that prevents him from seeing the signs. Someone is convinced that he should be on a certain path when all of the signs point in a different direction. How can we help that person to notice them? How can we notice the signs that are in our own life? And signs are not only personal, they're also societal. There are certain trends and events that point to larger trends, the so-called signs of the times. Ever since the 1980s, we've witnessed the slow decline of rural America. I saw it firsthand when I lived in Iowa. Small farms have disappeared, only to be replaced with large corporate farms. The population in rural areas has slowly declined. Addiction to opioids and crystal meth have risen in these same communities. There are fewer and fewer options available for people who live in these communities. The signs have been obvious for a long time, But it was only with the election of President Trump that those in power sat up and took notice. All of a sudden, we had a rural problem that's linked to a problem with men in the country more broadly. To Trump's credit, he saw the rural issues effectively and tapped into the discontent. But the signs, the signs had been there for a while. Today, there are countless signs in society, some good, others not so good. 
Like, but like with our own personal lives, how or if we see those signs depends on our life experience and the narratives we create in our own heads. How do we discern the signs of the times? What guides do we use? I think about what Elizabeth and Zechariah's neighbors must have thought. They lived in precarious times. When they looked around at society, they saw one problematic thing after another. We think we live in difficult times now, but when Jesus was born, Palestine was a powder keg on the verge of revolt. Various reform movements had sprung up within Judaism to try to rediscover the values that many had thought were lost. Many felt the real, many felt the real oppression of the Romans. Everywhere people looked, there were signs that all was not well. Something, some change was needed. A change that actually helped people, not just the elite. Like us today, Elizabeth and Zechariah's neighbors struggled with their own personal issues. Issues where they looked around for some guidance. Was it time to sell the farm? What could they do about their kids and the issues they faced? Everyone was trying their best, but amid all the options, they needed a sign. Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in a community where everybody, everyone knew everything about their neighbors. They knew that Elizabeth and Zechariah had tried for years to have a child. They knew how unlikely it was for someone her age to conceive. The neighbors had all seen Zechariah when he'd come back from the temple. For nine months, he could neither speak nor hear. As a priest, he was one of the most respected people in the village. Then they witnessed the most unlikely string of events. Elizabeth pregnant, the naming of John, the restoration of Zechariah's speech and hearing. It was a sign. A sign from God for the future. There was hope in the child John. God was very much with the villagers. In the midst of their fear and astonishment, this sign got the villagers to see their lives anew. I'm sure when the villagers returned to their homes that morning after the miraculous incident in the synagogue, they wondered what this sign meant for their own lives. It made them think, God is here And at work, what signs from God had they been missing? So often they get caught up trying to think through things all on their own. They create pro and con lists. They talk to others. All the while, they might have been missing signs from God. In addition to being the lead up to Christmas, Advent is also the beginning of a new year for Christians. It's a season that's full of divine signs in our readings. Can we use those readings to discern the signs that God has given us in our own lives now? What is God telling you? We spend so much time trying to discern things on our own, with our own reason. Maybe if we step back and think, we can realize that God is actually giving us a sign. What is it for you? God is here in the midst of us. So where is God pulling you? May your ears and your speaking be open this day so you can sing praises to God like Zechariah. A sign has been given to the people. It's up to the people to let that sign lead us.